This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Scott Jones, Senior Minister for First Central Congregational Church. In today's show, Scott Jones talks about his childhood aspiration to be a preacher and his journey to a faith tradition capable of entertaining doubt. He shares the experience of coming out as a gay man within the church and how the pandemic impacted his own and his congregation's lives, including the breakdown of Scott's own marriage. Scott also shares advice for a good life offered by his young son. We continue to grow and develop and change our minds and, and that it's a living faith. And that, that appeals to me personally. And so I found a real home in that tradition. And it's really fun to be a faith leader in that tradition, in my opinion. Scott Jones grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, knowing since the age of five that he wanted to be a preacher. Then, at age 29, he came out as a gay man while serving as a youth minister at a Baptist church in Texas, a story that you can read in his book, Open, a memoir of faith, family, and sexuality. Since 2010, Scott has served as the senior minister of Omaha's First Central Congregational Church. Scott earned a PhD in philosophy from the University of Oklahoma and has taught as a lecturer in the philosophy department of Creighton University. Scott enjoys many activities and experiences, but the most joyful is being the father to a wonderfully precocious seven-year-old son. Scott Jones, welcome to Lives. Hey, Stuart. How are you? It's good to be here. Uh, We were chatting off air and I'm just so struck by that idea that at age five, you can know that you want to be anything, let alone that you were that clear that you wanted to be a preacher. So tell me a little about your childhood and about that that realization. Well, I think lots of people at age five want to be something, but it's, you know, do you end up actually becoming that, you know? Uh, so, but I grew up in this, you know, religious milieu in this uh, small town in Northeastern Oklahoma. And, and of course the preacher was someone with you admired who had some authority and, um, I've just always been, a, for some reason, a deeply religious person, and so that that appealed to me. My mother uh, has this picture that I drew in first grade, so probably when I was six. Um, we were supposed to draw what we wanted to be when we grew up. I don't know why that was the assignment, and that, there's me standing at a pulpit preaching, and she's sitting on the first pew, you know, the little stick figures that a first grader would draw. My current seven-year-old has now taken to saying he wants to grow up to be a pastor, and I'm doing everything I can to dissuade him from <laughs> from that. But it, um, you know, who knows if that would have like ultimately panned out? But it just did, like the way the rest of my life, you know, as it developed. That's that is what I continue to pursue, and that's what I've been doing now for 25 years. It's interesting that you remark upon you know, the town that you grew up in and the, the milieu and the fact that, you know, a preacher is a figure of some respect and admiration in a community. So what was that community like? You know, what was, what stands out to you just from your memories of being a kid in that community? 
I grew up in Miami, Oklahoma, town of about 15,000 at that point in the 70s and 80s. And, and I grew up at the First Baptist Church, which is the largest church in the county. And this was in the era in which the fundamentalists were taking control of the Southern Baptist Convention. That had not always been the case. And my particular church was not fundamentalist. County seat First Baptist generally weren't. They were still, you know, conservative Southern evangelicals, but there was more of a distinction at that point in time. So I grew up, I think, I've often said that kind of growing up in Miami, even in like the 80s, felt was probably very similar to the same it was for growing up from my mother in the same place in like the 50s and the 60s. It was still, it was still very much this kind of mid 20th century small town America before, of course, the factory closed in 1986 and everything changed. But, and that's a story ubiquitous in this country and other parts of the world. So there's so much about my childhood that was kind of, you know, idyllic and a good place to raise a family. And it, I felt it was a world in which like, you know, if you worked hard and did what you were supposed to, it got rewarded and praised and, and benefit. Now then, of course there are, you know, as an adult, you look back and th there are the dark sides to that. You know, it was a racially homogenous place uh, and by design historically, not so much in my lifetime that the after effects in my time, the religious culture I grew up in didn't prepare me really in any way for my sexuality and, you know, coming out as a gay man later in life. And it was not, rapidly anti-gay in the time period I grew up. That did come a little bit more later. Um, so, you know, with retrospect, you see both the blessings and both the, the lacks, even some of the wounds that probably still continue to be there decades later. It's interesting to be able to mature in life and to have those reflective considerations and to look back on those aspects of your earlier life that weren't visible to you at that time. Mm. And so that's a benefit of maturing over time. But it's also lovely to think that there were moments when you were younger that it was all just blessings because the rest of the context was invisible to you. You were um, growing into the world and therefore some of those other aspects that were perhaps a little more negative weren't, weren't so visible. So in that context of you just sort of, as it were, being younger and embracing possibilities of life, what was it about then seeing ministry as a potential vocation that appealed to you? How, how did that show up? You know, in some ways, that's a hard question to answer because it's just kind of been so much a part of my sense of identity my whole life. It, it, there wasn't like some serious period of rational, mature evaluation. I mean, staying in ministry over the years at various points where I might not have, but, um, you know, at the age of 14, I started preaching in my local church and which is, you know, very young. Um, and, and I just began to cultivate those skills. And I also, you know, I was always a, um, a thinking kid and I was always asking lots of questions so part of it was there's an, you know, like the pastor's office in my home church growing up, you know, was this all four walls were just books. And so a life of the mind um, was part of what, and maybe that not everybody thinks of ministers in that way, but that's my, you know, my office is all books. And 
Um, and so part of going off to school then and pursuing that as an intellectual academic pursuit was I had all these questions that, that I wanted to better understand and, and have some sense of how to respond to. And so it was partly kind of answering my own, you know, questions that kept me in it. And, um, and then while I was in college and I went to Oklahoma Baptist university to our state denominational college and there that, you know, philosophy really piqued my interest too. And so I added that to my academic repertoire and then went on to do the PhD in philosophy. There was a period there where I thought I wouldn't be a preacher, that I be an academic and maybe do some preaching on the side because I knew academics that did that. That isn't ultimately what, what happened at the end, end of my PhD when I was trying to decide what to do, applying to both academic to academic jobs mainly, but some friends in ministry put my name in for some ministry gigs and that ended up being the direction that I took. I did. So I did have a period of evaluation at that point of like, what do I really want to do? And at that point, why I decided not to pursue academia full time was as much as I can help people in the classroom. And I feel like I do like uh, at the, at that time I was working with teenagers and the week I was trying to make this decision, we had in the youth group that I was helping with in church in Oklahoma. And we had um, a kid who had been sexually assaulted. We had a, a kid whose parents had figured out they had an eating disorder and were needing to take steps to treat that. And then we had another kid who um, his parents had been arrested for criminal act. And it was just this sense of the real urgent needs of, of actual people. And I thought, um, as a minister, I can do more to have direct impact on trying to help particularly kids' lives. So, I feel like you're hitting on something that for me is quite an important distinction mm-hmm. in language and what it evokes for me. Maybe it doesn't evoke the same things for others, but the word preacher or preaching suggests a certain sort of egocentricity and um, a talking at people, whereas the word minister or ministering connotes, I think, for me, something very different. It it seems to be much more about service. In what you've shared with us, I think you've really illustrated that journey of thinking about who you are and what you do. So very much you live in your mind. You ask big questions about the world and existence and who you want to be and why the world is this way and so on and so forth. But also at the same time, you see people around you that need care. And so I, I want to jump back quickly then to when you were 14 and perhaps preaching how you were received, and if you were conscious perhaps at that time that it was more preaching than ministering. Yeah, at that point it's more, yeah, because you don't have the the maturity, the experience to, to do much of helping people with their problems. Um, the uh, And you don't have those relationships. You know, it, uh, it, it was received, you know, somewhat as a novelty, you know, but um, the sense of, you know, here's this precocious young kid, and wow, look what he can do, and... And, you know, I lived in this mostly rural county and, and so I, the little small rural churches, like when I, that's where I learned to preach because when their pastors were gone, I often was filling in, um, you know, sometimes a congregation as small as eight people, uh, in some backwoods congregation. And I'm so not like, uh, this kind of backwoods rural person in like my current persona. So even to me, it's somewhat amusing to think of the time period when that, was in fact a part of my story. When you think about your identity as who you are as 
a man of professional faith. Let mm. me let me put it that way. How do you go about balancing how you identify yourself and then how you live up to the roles of being a preacher, but also a minister? To me, preaching currently, that is my craft. That's my art. That's the thing I work really hard at being good at and, you know, study and prepare. And for me, it's an, it's both an intellectual exercise and an artistic exercise. And so it's one component of ministry. Ministry is kind of just the whole, you know, way you live your life, um, roles in the community, interactions with people, even how you make administrative and business sort of decisions. And kind of my overall approach my job, particularly in my, my faith community, is to be the person who kind of inspires with ideas and possibilities and uh, enables other people's like agency and, and development and growth. And, and it, particularly in our denomination where the, the decision-making is in the congregation, not in the, in the ministerial authority, to then engage in kind of persuasive processes of trying to uh, shape a vision and a and a direction for a congregation. So for me, it's very much not the, you know, talking at and telling people, you know, what to do and think and all that other stuff. I understand why that would be a public perception because there's plenty of preachers that do do that. That's not what I do, but mine's much more about getting people to look at things in various ways, ask questions, consider for themselves. So. Not that I want to pit one religious tradition against another, but there are numerous um, historic and traditional religious practices and, and faiths. And there are what I might think of as some relatively new religious ideologies. And I'm wondering what it is that has, as it were, pulled you towards the particular tradition that you occupy and how you would describe that in, in a way that people could understand its difference to some of the others. My current denomination, the United Church of Christ, that name we've only had since 1957, but, and it comes from a variety of mergers of different groups, but, you know, the most identifiable group to the public would be that one branch of us goes all the way back to the pilgrims and the Puritans, you know, landing in New England. Um, so throughout our 400 years in this country, we, um, we've been a movement that valued uh, learned clergy. One of our particular historians says that maybe the key identifying characteristic of our faith movement is the entertainment of doubt, which cannot be said of many faith communities. And because of that, we have then often been the first at things. We ordained the first African-American in the 18th century, we ordained, began ordaining women in the 19th century. We ordained the first openly gay man in more than 50 years ago. We were the first to embrace same-sex marriage religiously. So I had, it also, I, my own family is descended from the pilgrims. So there was like old historic roots. Now we became Baptist when 400 years ago, the Baptists were the dissenters standing up for religious freedom against the Puritans of Massachusetts. You know, over the centuries, those identities have shifted. Um, so I always thought it was kind of interestingly ironic that, you know, a few centuries later, I made the reverse move back to the other denomination because it is now the one that, 
you know, stands up for free thinking and, and dissent and, and is both a, is a historic faith tradition that is deeply rooted in all the great, you know, ideas and spiritual practices of, you know, the 2000 years of Christian faith, but doesn't view that as a closed off conversation or a finished conversation. We continue to grow and develop and change our minds and, and that it's a living faith. And that, that appeals to me personally. And that's, I found a real home in that tradition. And it's really fun to be a faith leader in that tradition, in my opinion. You've mentioned free thinking and being first at and entertainment of doubt and this ongoing conversation. So that's a, that's a way for me to recognize that spirit and to ask you then the question that you shared in your bio, which is about the experience of coming out as a gay man. Mm -hmm. um, and so not all faith traditions are as accepting about a conversation around that, let alone accepting that form of identity and the truth of that for people. What was your experience of internally wrestling with that as someone who also knew from age five you wanted to be a preacher, reconciling that in, in faith traditions and then moving through that journey to a place where you felt comfortable being who you are, but also practicing a faith? So, you know, I wrote a whole book to answer that question. So <laughs> uh, I will try to do a short answer as I can uh, to that. Um, so when, you know, 20 years ago, when I was finally, you know, facing my own sexuality and trying to determine whether to come out, and was at the time, you know, like I said, living in Dallas at a Baptist, a more moderate to liberal Baptist church, but still a Baptist church. It was not a Southern Baptist church at that point. Um, and, you know, working with teenagers and then trying to deal with my own sexuality. I mean, that, that's a very fraught terrain in which to, but in many ways, that congregation was also the place where I felt the ability to have that because they already had openly gay lay people who were in leadership in that congregation, which would have made them unique in Baptist churches in Texas. But uh, so it was a safer place than it could have been. It was still not a fully open and embracing place. Um, it has since become so. Like, so, you know, to their credit, the time I came out, that was still conversation with some struggle around it that they eventually resolved in a really good way and have had a really good, effective um, ministry in the gay community in Dallas going forward. Um, so, for me, the, the struggle, a lot of gay people coming out through faith are trying to wrestle with interpretations of scripture that they grew up with and reconcile that with their identity. Interestingly, my story wasn't really that, uh, even though people kept trying to pigeonhole it as that. Partly because of my education, I had kind of dealt with uh, different ways of interpreting scripture and how to apply. As an academic question, independent of my own personal um, identity questions. Where it was for me is I was really struggling with, I knew at the core of my identity and forever that I was a minister. And I really struggled with how am I going to live it openly as a gay man and continue to do this thing that I also know is really true about myself. So to me, it was a matter of... Um, trying to reconcile these two, to me, fundamental aspects of my identity. And, and then fortunately I could like, and it's, it's not that I, even then I knew that there were churches and denominations where I could, it just, there weren't very many and it, 
uh, it wasn't an easy path. Still not very many, still not an easy path, but a whole lot more than there were 20 years ago. And so, you know, even being hired here at First Central Congregational Church in 2010, you know, an old historic, very traditional church, you know, 95% heterosexual, even that was kind of a significant kind of step. There would have been a point where congregation like that, even in a more liberal denomination, might not have been, you know, open to someone like me. But, you know, that has changed and hopefully continues to change in positive and good directions. I'm just curious if it's hard to be in a community, any community, where people may talk about being devout in some faith. So there's that common denominator where people say, I, I believe in this divine mm-hmm. entity, but I deny this particular group's interpretation of that. Um, because you would be denied, I think, in, in some oh, yeah. shapes or form. I just don't know how you go about coming to terms with that, if, if you can, not least in perhaps, as we record this, an atmosphere of increasing um, you know, bias and bigotry. Yeah, I guess one point to, that I left out in, in answering that question is I think another key part of my particular story is I did it all in the heartland too. There's a lot of, um, you know, gay stories of people wrestling with their small town Southerner, Midwestern family and faith and community. And, and often those stories are how they like abandoned all that and went someplace else. And that's not mine. Mine is I stayed put where it was hard, stayed in the church, uh, where it hasn't always been easy. Um, and the, um, and I know my, and my experience has somehow turned out better than other people. Cause not ever other people, even in similar circumstances to me have much worse stories. I always have to make sure and acknowledge it. I am not a, I am not the one and only story of how this goes. This, but mine is a story. So, um, but to me, it was really important to stay in places like Oklahoma and Texas and Nebraska and to do this and to, to live um, a general, a, a public life that was um, working for justice, working for equality, and, and living as both an openly gay man and a person of faith. And there have been times where that was obviously much harder than others. And you know, there is worry, you know, looking for, cause a lot of the stuff that we felt, you know, seven years or so ago, like maybe we had finally won and achieved a lot of stuff and just kind of needed the mopping up victories going forward. I mean, there is real nervousness about, are we going to slip backwards to a period we thought we had gotten past? Um, and if so, I guess I'll go back to doing the things I did then and keep fighting and advocating and arguing for a better world. One of the phrases that I feel like has been part of our cultural dialogue the last few months has been um, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, because that's the other big marker, I think, for us generationally. And so faith institutions, like any individual, Mm -hmm. like many institutions across the country, across the world, were deeply impacted, traumatically so, by the pandemic. And your church and congregation is no different. You too were impacted drastically by the pandemic. And I I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what sort of happened in in the early weeks and months of the pandemic, and then we can talk about how how things changed. Yeah, in some ways, almost everything 
we did suddenly was different and had to be done differently. We're not the only sector for sector for whom that was true, but it was really true for us. And, um, you know, cause even things like minister, you know, you're used to visiting people in the hospital and being with them when they die. We weren't, you know, obviously weren't doing that. Um, and we still don't fully know what all the effects are going to be in, you know, upon churches and, and religion. But so in the early weeks, we were very lucky in our congregation that we had some real experts. We had a retired director of uh, epidemiology from the county health department, and we had a retired top-notch infectious disease doctor. And so even before, when, like in early March, when it was suddenly became, oh, this, we got to be thinking about, you know, I that, remember that last council meeting before, the last in-person council meeting before, you know, everything started shutting down, you know, we went through all these contingency plans and came up with, here's how we're going to change this and here's how we're going to change it. And so much work went into that. And about three days later, none of it really mattered. There were no contingency plans. Everything was just shut down, you know? And, um, and of course, like everyone else, assume at first it'll be a few weeks and then you think, well, maybe a couple months. And um, that first Sunday when we did worship, there were, I think, six of us in the room, and we had a laptop propped up on a music stand because we had been debating whether or not to live stream for years and, you know, should we spend the money and who would watch and blah, blah, blah. So we, we didn't have all the apparatus. So we, we eventually got it, you know, so we slowly grew into it and figured out, bought the right stuff and trial and error. And, you know, you'd have the we would follow along on the tweet and be like, Oh, suddenly the sound is cut out. No one can hear us. And you know, it was strange. I know as a preacher, I have to say, I found the early weeks and months very hard because worship became for me much. It was all giving and not really receiving. Cause when you're talking to a congregation and you see their faith, you're getting something, you're getting energy, you're getting feedback, you're getting response. You're seeing how, what you've said connects or doesn't connect with other people, whether they laugh, whether they're cry, you know, and you get all that and it, it, it both, it feeds you and it, you know, it obviously influences what you're saying and how you're saying it. And, you know, there's none of that. You're, you're looking at an image of yourself, <laughs> which seems like so obnoxious and vain and awful. Soul sucking is what I said. So it, I found it very challenging to my own spirit at a precise point where I needed to be doing it to be uplifting other people. So it, it was um, a great deal of work. And then we just had to figure out how to care for people in a completely different way. You know, lots of phone calls, lots of, you know, zoom classes. Uh, we started doing like daily devotionals that were, we were all videoing from our homes or our yards and, and, you know, everything we could think, you know, some things worked better than other things. And, uh, and then some things we've, kept, we'll probably keep permanently. Um, we're never going to quit live streaming the service again. We gained congregants around the country and around the world who, uh, former members, grandkids of members, all sorts of things. So how, how did the spiritual needs of your congregation shift? And you've talked a little bit about how you had adapted to try to connect and minister. But I'm just 
curious as as someone whose work is about nurturing people's inner lives, how you were sensitive to that shift and and you know what you could do about helping people. So despite the fact that everybody was undergoing the same thing, people had vastly different experiences on a couple of different spectrums, partly depending on kind of, and this was language we all came to use later, right? But how they kind of made their own risk assessments. I mean, from the get go. And then of course as things, um, you know, there were some people who were very frightened and became very closed off. And, uh, and then we didn't, I didn't think in our particular congregation, we had anyone like really way on the other end, but we did have people, you know, on another end of a spectrum from that. Um, and then there were some, you know, there were like the retirees who are more introverted and like to read for whom, you know, they miss going to some things or some interactions, but overall they, they didn't find it to be anywhere near as painful as, you know, um, single mothers with kids at home and trying to do remote schooling who were just stressed out and confused and hurting and, you know, and all of your kind of support systems go. So it was, it, it was so, I, I don't know when it fully kind of began to register. Like though everybody's kind of going through the same thing, how it's affecting them, how they're responding is so different. And then because of that, it was, it was hard to do anything that was going to appeal to, or help everyone. And so there almost, there felt to be this, like you had to have so many different ways of trying to intersect with people across those spectrums. And one of the first things I did in the spring of 2020 is had a series of zoom forums where my kind of talking about what was going on with, um, you know, and we started out with health questions and we did mental health and we did spirituality and, and then we did justice questions because by that point the protests were occurring summer of 2020. Um, but I actually had kind of two other goals in mind with those four. One was that they were really about how do we deal with uncertainty? Didn't market it that way. Cause I wasn't sure that people would actually tune in, but humans aren't good at that. We're not, we don't like uncertainty. And, and as the, as 2020 moved into May and in June, like, I mean, none of us really knew at that point, even if we'd been kind of all four things in like March or April. Now we're like, what's going on? When's this going to end? What, you know, so learning to be able to live with uncertainty and develop that resilience became really important to me and to try to convey that in the congregation. The other was also in having these kind of panels of people in our congregation who had expertise in these areas of mental health and health and spirituality and other, um, was to highlight that in our little community who we had some, we had great capacity, uh, great capacity to actually help us in this period of uncertainty. And so let's rely upon the, the capacity we have all the years of experience and, and wisdom and knowledge and, and, and really work at helping each other because no one of us has everything we need to make it through this crisis, but maybe at least in our little community, we can do that. I feel like the pandemic revealed aspects of life to us that perhaps were 
previously invisible or it amplified our perspective on certain things. It also, I think, did the same for us as individuals. And in a, another conversation, you shared with me that one lesson you took away from this was that you were weaker than you thought you were. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a kind of a tough thing to talk about, right? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I used to always think that, you know, in some post-apocalyptic world or in some, you know, major catastrophe that I'd be one of those people that really kind of leading the community afterwards and helping to rebuild. And I, in the spring of 2020, there just was this sense of like, wow, you know, I don't, actually, I don't think that is going to be me. I felt um, so out of sorts and so not my, definitely not my best self and not even really myself. And, um, and almost a sense of like, gosh, if, if there was one of those situations really bad catastrophe or something post apocalyptic I just don't think I'd, I just wouldn't want to be around for it. And, and it was, that was revealing. I didn't, I didn't know that about myself. Now I still don't know fully what to do with that. You know, I don't know if I need to just acknowledge I'm weaker than I, and less courageous than I thought I was and learn to accept that about myself or if those are deficiencies I need to try to work on. But I guess there's still not quite enough distance yet to fully know uh, what to do with that. This may apply then similarly to this observation, which you also shared with me that, you know, uh, having gone through the pandemic and maybe it's because of that, or it's given us a pause to think more deeply about better questions, but many of us are reevaluating what matters. And I wonder what you have seen as you minister to people, what that reevaluation perhaps, maybe not necessarily in terms of answers, but what is that reevaluation for people? And and also for yourself, what are you sure. reevaluating? Oh yeah, definitely. I've seen that. I think that's been significant for a lot of people. You know, people have retired earlier than they planned. They've quit jobs that they hadn't otherwise thought they were going to quit. They've prioritized more time at home with, with family. They're not, as social or they're not as involved in as many things as they once were. They're ordering their time differently and their priorities. And um, that's been interesting to watch and to talk to people about. I've, um, I've seen marriages strengthened. I've seen marriages end, including my own in this time period. And, and, and the stressors of the pandemic played a role. Um, and for myself, um, what became the priority for me, you know, kind of right off the bat was my son who was only four at the time when everything shut down. Um, I mean, he caring for him and making sure he had what he needed really became the priority. And cause I, my thought at the time, I think I told you this before was that, you know, he was going to live for at least a hundred more years and who knew what he was going to remember from this moment or what impact it would have. Um, on kind of his life story. But my goal was to just to make sure that developmentally and health wise and everything that he, he had what he needed to get through the crisis well and to be prepared for the next century of life. Uh, and really prioritize that even above, you know, my own, you know, needs and, and, and wants. And, and in some ways that hasn't, fully changed, you know, then going through a divorce, um, you know, prioritizing the kid and his 
well-being also became um, an important part of you know my life focus the last couple of years. So it and it wasn't that he wasn't the priority before he was, but it it seems a more all-consuming priority than maybe he once was. So. Whether as a result of the pandemic or just generally through your your life's experiences, has your attitude to your faith, your impersonal attitude to your faith been uh, strengthened or using that phrase, uh, you've entertained some doubt um, or perhaps it's shifted in other more subtle ways because of these experiences? Um, I My faith is pretty deep and I... And though I've asked all the the doubts and the questions, like, and um, but I never felt like a full, real, like a crisis of faith in um, through the pandemic. I I had some crisis about some of my own kind of personal values in that because I've historically been a person, and part of my gay activism was this of like really encouraging people to be more open to be more vulnerable, to be more daring, to be more bold, to not be governed by fear, to not close themselves off from other people. And suddenly all of those that I think are my gifts and my value. Well, no, if like, that's not, I couldn't get up and tell people to do that. That would have endangered their lives and the well-being of the community. So I felt that was part of my being out of sorts, the things that normally were important to me. Um, and so I had some kind of struggle about, well, wow, these values that are really important to me didn't, aren't the ones that necessarily worked in this crisis. I do think they normally work, but like, so there was struggle with that. Um, and then, in, you know, with my marriage ending, that that was a spiritual crisis, but not about in kind of, of um, not really in kind of doubting or questioning God's presence and comfort in my life through that. Um, but wondering, um, I had found marriage to be, a spiritual exercise that made me a better person um, from which I grew and I valued it a lot. And for that not to be there um, was difficult. And then to wonder about things like, you know, grace and forgiveness and, and all the things that, you know, make for a successful relationship and wonder, you know, where did I go wrong? What did I do right? What was out of my control? You know, that there, there's been a lot of prayer and meditation and reflection and therapy and spiritual direction to sort through all those questions. Does it make you a better minister yeah, of congregation? It does. Yeah. I mean, anytime a minister goes through their own personal crises, they understand something better and they're better at it. But my gosh, we hate paying that price. <laughs> like, you know, I think I was pretty good without that, but yes, I, it, it, yeah, it does make me better. And definitely is the more I get on the other side of it. I mean, I, part of what was shocking to me is the thought that, uh, you know, half the population is divorced and I thought, Oh my gosh, now I really understand personally the pain, the heartbreak, the hurt, the everything else that, half the population is carrying around with them. And wow. I mean, I'm just amazed at our ability as human beings to be resilient and to carry on and to have our lives because the kind of, you know, when you take all the various crises of life, you know, deaths and job losses and all, you know, horrible things that happen to people. 
you know, it's pretty amazing that we still do the things that we do and create the beauty that we do and, and show the kindness and love for each other. It's just amazing that we all get up and get out of bed and put our clothes on and go about our lives every day, honestly. So. It feels to me as if your life in some ways is a perpetual surfacing of questions and experiences from which you learn. And then you learn that there are more questions and experiences. Oh, yeah, too. yeah. Yeah. Is everybody's life that way? Is it well, not? I mean, I feel like that's about my, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think for some people it, it can be quite uncomfortable. For example, you know, some people pay professional consultants to tell them the answer. They don't want to wrestle with the question. Uh, okay. Um, you know, as the poet yeah, Rilke says, you know, live with the questions, but that makes us uncomfortable. You talked about uncertainty. Um, and there are some faith traditions where you expect to be told the answer. Told I guess that's my philosophical thing. temperament. You know, I like the questions. So um, I like wrestling with the questions. Have you found though that your congregation, not least in this last period of time, and maybe spread beyond the congregation because you're a, a member, a leader in the community sure. too. So our, our community at large, do you find that people want you to give them an answer? Yes, some people do. Yeah, lots of people do. Yeah, I do think that the, I, you know, as you as now, I think more about your question. Like, I do think that there are just by temperament some people who are really uncomfortable, lacking certainty or control or an answer or, um, and even if they don't have it for themselves, they need someone else to have it. Uh, and then I think there are other people who are just by temperament more comfortable uh, with doubt and uncertainty and questions and, and uh, having to figure it out for themselves, not have it given to them. So what are, what are you wrestling with now? And, and what are you thinking is perhaps the, the next set of questions or the next layer of inquiry that is sort of setting up for your life? I'm trying not to wrestle with too much. I go on sabbatical next week. So <laughs> uh, I'm trying to take a break from wrestling, but uh, some of my, you know, reading and study all on sabbatical is going to be around climate change. That's not a new issue for me. I've been straight, but I just want to make sure that personally and as a leader and in my congregation that we really do understand what's happening and what's coming and are trying to, be better prepared and to live for it. Um, I just completed a series of um, sermons that I spent about six months working on about this question of kind of how do we cope with the ever accelerating pace of change and how we kind of tell time. And there's a lot of recent study across various disciplines about how that's really exhausting us and disorienting us as humans. I mean, and, and that it's led to an increase in anxiety and led to an increase in depression. And um, that people feel like they can't keep up with their best life. You know, this idea of live your best life. That people, Lots of people can't. They can't keep up with it. Um, and they can't keep up with all the constant technological changes. Uh, you know, they, they reach the point where they think they've got a great skill set and they understand the world. And five years later, they're antiquated, right? And that didn't used to be true for people. That was maybe true for machines, but that's it's beginning to come tr more and more true for people and their knowledge and their skill sets. And um, so that, though it's also a, a mental health crisis and and other thing, it is also a spiritual crisis. Like how how do we understand human nature? So the this whole series that I had been working on for six months and then preached about was 
you know, then given that that's a factor of contemporary life that can't change, you can't just stop, can't unwind the clock, can't go back. Uh, so how do we individually as a congregation kind of deal with that as a spiritual crisis? So I really enjoyed wrestling with that um, set of questions. And, and I don't think I'm done wrestling with that set of questions. It's nice to think from that go into a sabbatical where I get to take some time off and um, engage in some self-care. So I, I want to close with a question then about your son. Mm-hmm. And so when you were five, as we've discussed, you knew deep within yourself that being a preacher was part of who you are. And as you journey through life too, you also realize that your identity as a gay man was something that needed to be acknowledged and lived. But you also said that uh, your son suggested that he might want to follow in your footsteps and be a preacher and, you, and you're advocating, you know, don't do that. And I, I'm curious. And it's not because that's a bad profession. No. I just don't want him to feel like he has to follow please along. me and do what I do. Yeah. So what is the advice that you give him? I know he's young, but so maybe the advice you give him, plan to give him about how he should think about living a, a good life. Um, well, one that he gets to, choose that for himself. You know, there's no pre-existing, you know, pattern that he has to fall into. To me, part of the fun of parenting is watching the child passion and interest and just kind of wondering which is going to finally be the one. And it doesn't have to have happened yet. He's only seven, but it could happen. You know, what's the one that he's going to land on that that's it, you know, and that could be what he's into for forever. I mean, right now he's really into dinosaurs. So I don't know, you know, lots of kids go through that phase and, uh, but maybe that's the thing that, you know, lasts permanently. Um, Sebastian is um, remarkably wise. And I think that is somewhat a feature of having been a child through these last few years. He doesn't expect life to be stable and routine and certain because it hasn't been. All of his memory, years of memory, it's been um, some instability and uncertainty. And he seems to roll with that. Uh, And he's often, you know, giving me some advice. The other day I was, I've lost some sunglasses and I can't find them. Brand new ones. And he keeps saying, just get it off your mind. Don't worry about it, Dan. And it's amazing to have this wise voice from this young child. Um, So I'm, I'm confident he is going to um, be okay. And that as worried as I was in March of 2020, like I'm, I'm not now about him. My guest today has been Scott Jones, Senior Minister for First Central Congregational Church. Scott, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Stuart. It's fun. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. 
Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. In the coming weeks, you will hear conversations with, among others, the custom furniture maker and wood sculptor, Todd McCollister, and Jay Leiter, an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Creighton University. next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.